Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today, EIG attorney Hiba Amber is joined by Bloomberg Law journalist and special guest Laura D. Francis. The two discuss immigration initiatives the White House is considering to enact early next year in order to preserve more American jobs. Exactly how would this impact the families of H-1B candidates and the companies that employ them? In addition, we consider the potential future of the H-1B lottery and Laura's main takeaways from her conversation with the director of USCIS, Frank Cisna. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. It's actually a very unique opportunity for us to be able to talk to you because you kind of merge two different worlds. You're a lawyer by education, but you're also a journalist and you've been covering immigration, right? So from our perspective, we've experienced the last two years from the ground level, but from the perspective of, you know, practitioners. It's not every day that we get to, you know, talk to a journalist who's also on the ground level and in the weeds, but from a journalist perspective. So in terms of, you know, the increase in activity, what stood out to you the most in terms of changes? So... The Trump administration has a real distinct focus on employment-based immigration that was kind of sort of there under the Obama administration, but not to the same degree. And it all really relates back to the Buy American, Hire American Executive Order, which came out in April 2017. And their whole approach is really centered around, I think, two things. You know, one, enforcing the immigration laws Uh, you know, the way that they're interpreting them. And I know that there's some, you know, disagreement in the law community about how you interpret the Immigration and Nationality Act. But, you know, they're interpreting the law the way they see it. And then they're really putting an emphasis on protecting U.S. workers, um, you know, their jobs, their opportunities, and really making sure that U.S. employers aren't unfairly disadvantaging them. And so from my perspective, I always covered employment-based immigration. And I just haven't seen this kind of emphasis before. And it's made my job a whole lot busier because this is my specific beat. So how do employers react to this newfound interest and emphasis on employment-based immigration uh, in terms of, you know, either your coverage of certain companies or folks within those companies, the decision makers that you've had an opportunity to speak with, what sorts of concerns have they expressed? So from an employer perspective, all of this to them amounts to it's it's a lot harder to get the workers they need. Uh, their argument is we are going through this visa process. We are trying to get these foreign workers because we can't find anybody else. And they're seeing all of these changes as just putting roadblocks in their way. Different employers are reacting differently. You know, you have some big tech employers, you know, like Facebook, for instance, is very active in promoting a a pro-immigration agenda. Mm -hmm. So you have some of them that are actually getting into politics as a result. You have others that... I think there's starting to be a little bit more momentum in terms of companies being willing to sue over denials of visas and that sort of thing. Um, I know that, you know, businesses historically are reluctant to go to court, and especially against the government. And 
there, there's a lot more willingness now to do that. And I think that that's just starting up now as they're kind of seeing the effects of these policies really kind of take hold. Um, they are seeing a lot more denials of visas and that sort of thing. Um, and then I don't think this has happened too much yet, but there are definitely companies that are looking at, you know, taking those jobs and shipping them overseas. And their attitude is, well, I want this guy. And if I cannot bring this guy to the U.S., then I'm going to have him work wherever he is, either in his home country or another country where that, you know, where he can get a visa, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, it, I think it depends on the business, but that's kind of, you know, the overall reaction so far. So it's interesting, right? There seems to be an inherent contradiction in there. On the one hand, um, the purpose of buy American, hire American is to protect U.S. workers and U.S. jobs. But on the other hand, the impact on the ground that it's having on U.S. companies is they're not able to hire and then subsequently retain the talent that they need. And then additionally, in an effort to continue to employ that talent, as you just mentioned, they're even considering either shipping those jobs overseas or maybe relocating those employees to other companies. So what's this disconnect coming from? I mean, is it like a data issue? Uh, Is it just something that's specific to the tech company? Why are these U.S. tech companies and employers on such an opposite end of the spectrum from the underlying purpose of buy American, hire American? You know, I, I think a lot of it actually has to do with the limits on what the executive branch can do in this space. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of, it kind of was the same under the Obama administration as well, that you have two administrations that want to do things in immigration. But at the end of the day, you have to follow the Immigration and Nationality Act. And I, you know, I don't know... Uh, single person I've ever talked to who doesn't think that that law needs to, you know, some serious work. Um, you know, now there are differences of opinion as to what needs to be changed and how. But everyone kind of agrees, like, what we have now is not working. So President Trump can issue an executive order, um, you know, for instance, in the Buy American, Hire American order, he had a line in there about how the immigration agencies need to look at ways that they can overhaul the H-1B program so it's only the most skilled and highest paid workers who get those visas. You know, the problem with that is that that's not really how the law is written. So you have a lot of employers that, for instance, will hire H-1B workers at entry-level wages. Um, You know, and and, I mean, in tech, I mean, you're still talking about a good amount of money. But... Entry level is not going to be the highest paid. I mean, some senior level person is is going to be making the bigger bucks. And, you know, that's legal under the INA. Like, it's contemplated by the INA that you can hire someone at an entry level job for an H-1B. So I think both administrations are kind of trying to find ways to shape the immigration law within the confines of the law, you know, and, and the confines of what they can do as the executive branch. That's, you know, probably the biggest issue for the administration in terms of really getting at what they want, which is to make sure that 
these visa programs aren't being used to displace U.S. workers. So I think also one of the ways in which they're attempting to achieve this goal is by focusing on employment authorization for H-4 dependents of H-1B workers. And this has been a hot topic in our world for sure, because this was something that developed relatively recently after several years of H-1B spouses not having work authorization, mm-hmm. and now it's at risk. The administration has has you know reiterated its intent to eliminate EADs for H-4 dependents time and time again. Do you think that this is going to have sort of a trickle-down effect on U.S. companies in the sense that if an H-1B worker's spouse can't work in the United States, then that H-1B worker may be a bit more reluctant to either accept employment or continue employment in the United States? Well, I, I guess there there are a couple of parts to this. Um, for one, you know, it's important to know that not all H-4 spouses of H-1B workers are entitled to the work permits in the first place. Very true. It is only the spouses of H-1B workers who have been approved for green cards who are waiting for those green cards to become available because we have this crazy long backlog um, due to various factors. So... For the most part, we're we're talking about people who are already here, who have already committed to immigrate to the United States, who are going to be affected. So anybody who is not in the United States, they can't, you know, just come now and, and, you know, their spouse be able to work. Like a regular H-1B worker, like their spouse still can't work. It, It may be that people who are already here decide to leave. I mean, one thing that I I learned, you know, covering this topic, and you're right, it's a really hot topic. It's concerning to a whole lot of people. A lot of people made some pretty big financial decisions based on all of a sudden getting this second income. And, uh, you know, considering that a lot of these age four spouses are skilled workers themselves, I mean, you know, we're talking about a pretty significant second income, and, you know, they, 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 you know, bought houses, some people started businesses, I mean, that sort of thing. And if that just goes out the window, I mean, they're like, we may not be able to stay here. And, you know, when you're looking at like a 150 year wait for a green card, you know, I don't know anybody who lives that long. Um, basically, like, you're never going to get a green card, and you're kind of stuck in this position for the rest of your life you know, they they may decide to go elsewhere. Yeah. So that's actually very interesting. You're right. I think what's also important to point out is a lot of um, these H-1B jobs are concentrated in certain geographic locations to begin with. Obviously, the first example that comes to mind is Silicon Valley or the Bay Area, which is also coincidentally one of the most expensive areas in the country in which to live. So you kind of can't survive out there without two incomes, you know. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I can see how that would be very disruptive. Actually, just to kind of switch gears, you've got, you know, uh, the administration's stance on protecting U.S. workers and how certain um, parts of Buy American, Hire American in the form of H-1B has impacted individual workers directly, right? But there's also been a focus on 
companies in terms of an uptick in site visits and ensuring compliance and whatnot. And to me, that actually has more potential to impact them more directly because you're not just going after a foreign national worker at this point, you're going after the company, so to speak. What has been your observation in terms of employee, employer anxiety, rather, or you know what the companies are doing in the face of you know this threat of an uptick in I-9 audits and site visits and whatnot? Well, I mean, certainly they're relying on their immigration counsel a lot more. Uh, you know, there's, you're right. I mean, the, the, the site visits are up. They, not only are there more site visits, but they are, um, at least USCIS is expanding their site visit program to more visa categories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, historically it's kind of been focused on, you know, religious workers, um, L1s and H1B visa holders. Now they've, you know, kind of expanded into uh, E-visas as well as H-2B, the seasonal workers. And and that's in addition to ICE is conducting way, way more I-9 audits. Um, and you also have the Labor Department stepping up their enforcement as well, you know, in the areas that they cover. Definitely you have some bad apple employers out there that are starting to be caught. And, you know, you can see that in, in, in some of the cases being brought by the agencies revealing visa fraud, um, you know, for employers that are trying to do things by the book, I, I think they're really trying to be extra diligent in making sure they've, you know, dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's and really preparing for, okay, the, you know, the government is going to probably be knocking at your door now, you know, just to make sure that that everything is on the up and up and the the person works where you said they work and they're doing what you said they are going to do and, and all of that sort of stuff. So I wanted to ask you about your interview of Frank Cisna. Uh, you recently had an opportunity to interview him, you know, one-on-one. And as you know, he's the director of USCIS. So he's definitely someone who's on the forefront of our minds um, in terms of our day to day, where is he coming from? You know, we'd love to hear more about just that conversation. Yeah. So um, this kind of relates back to what I said earlier: is he really views all of these regulations, all these policy memorandums that are coming out as enforcing the law? Um, you know, so for instance, with the H four EADs, um, he. Uh, went into a long um, discussion of the legislative history of um, the INA and Congress specifically provided work authorization to certain to the spouses of certain types of visa holders and not H-1B visa holders. And so from his perspective, um, you know, this regulation is not supported by the law. And he you know, he he wants to make the agency into one that actually follows the INA the way that he reads it. Um, so there's that. And then the other part is just dealing with a bunch of operational challenges that the agency has. So, um, you know, what he has said, um, not just to me, but he said this in public and like his, his real top priority is by the end of 2020, he wants to make um, the the intake process, so all the forms that everyone files to the agency, he wants that to be fully electronic. And he, he is really super committed to that. 
Um, I, I think there, that's going to have trickle-down effects in terms of how the agency is able to handle workload and transfer workload among the different service centers and that sort of thing. Um, so, I, you know, he's really, really um, committed to getting that done. He told me that it's actually the the process of of making everything electronic is is moving along so well that they're already kind of planning for the next step in terms of how is the agency going to handle workload because it used to be that you know you have to mail this form to this service center and if they got overloaded then they had to like ship all this paper to a different service center to adjudicate now if everything is just sent to the cloud it doesn't matter where an adjudicator is located in the com- in the country, they could just look at the petition and decide it. So I don't know how they're actually gonna work that, but that's something that they're considering right now. Like how are we going to approach that when you don't have to have a person looking at pieces of paper that are mailed directly to them? So. This is just, you know, uh, a question about your personal opinion with, you know, given everything that you've seen over the last, you know, nearly two years and um, now you have more insight into what ranks in terms of priority. What do you think is next for Q1 2019, if you had to guess? I think that the next big thing is going to be the next H1B lottery and what happens with that. Um, the other thing that Director Sista told me was that he really, really wants to have this pre-registration regulation in place by then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that may be a bit ambitious, depending on, I mean, they haven't even released a proposed rule yet. So they could get a gazillion public comments, in which case it's going to take longer to actually finalize the regulation. But what that would do is... Uh, anyone who is petitioning for an H-1B um, in the lottery, they would just kind of put their name in and they'd run the lottery based on that. And then you wouldn't even have to file a petition unless you were selected. So you wouldn't have to go to the trouble of of putting together stacks and stacks of paper and FedExing it to to USCIS. And then only to find out later that, oh, whoops, sorry, you didn't get picked that has the potential to be a a game changer um, for, you know, both for the agency and for H-1B employers. So you have that going on. You know, the other thing is, you know, the the last H-1B season um, back in April 2018 of this year, you, you have things that happen like, you know, right around there, and you know, you have all these memos that companies have to deal with, and RFEs, and, and RFEs, premium processing suspension, um, yeah. yeah, all that stuff. You know, and and actually, we've been noticing that like the the number of petitions has kind of been dropping a little bit each year after like really like mm-hmm. skyrocketing up. I mean, now still we've got like almost two hundred thousand petitions for 85,000 visas. So but it used to be higher. It did used to be higher. I think it peaked at what 236,000 at you know one point. Um, and it's kind of been, you know, dropping a little bit each year. So I, I think that's that's really something to watch. Um, you know, to see if they do get that regulation out and, you know, how that's going to affect the way everyone does things this time around. For more content and immigration updates, please visit our website at eiglaw.com. 
And make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG underscore law and our Instagram underscore EIG law to join in the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you next time.